trying to find those people who are going to help you. I think the way to get there is to just say yes to everything and like try to connect with like literally anyone you can. And that's how I was able to find the few people that were that were helpful. And there were just so many that weren't. But then because you're just have this very high throughput way of dealing with everything and you say yes to everything, you do everything. It takes a lot of time, but then you eventually do stumble across the people who are going to help. So you just have to have a lot, a lot of volume and then you find the good people. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Macademia Podcast, where myself, Ofer Zarbanea, together with Elena Itzkovic, we talk to fascinating people, explore their ways uh, of career path that they developed, going from academia to the non-academic career route. They share with us honestly their decision points, uh, how they approach this question, how they chose their careers, and of course, we talk a lot about what interesting and great stuff people are doing. Before we introduce today's guest, I want to welcome you all to join us to our Facebook group, that Twitter account uh, feed, to our LinkedIn uh, page. Come, be part of the conversation, ask questions, wonder about different career paths. And if you like this podcast, if you like our, our engagement over social media, do share it, do share it with friends, other friends who are just figure out what they want to do. Bring them in, ask more questions. It's all open, it's all there for you. So we appreciate any kind of rating and your favorite app, just spread the word around. It, first of all, motivates us to continue and secondly, it brings new people to really, really ask a great question. What can I do with my science more than what is just academia? We are so lucky that we get to talk to those amazing people. Today, we got to talk to Daniel Fried. He's an assistant professor at St. Peter University. Currently, he teaches. He teaches with every bone in his body. He does this in university. But we have come to him and talked to him mostly about his latest project. He's a founder of Biochemistry Literacy for Kids. He brings complex ideas and science in a very approachable way to every age. Daniel shared with us all kinds of hardships and challenges that are waiting for people who want to, to take upon entrepreneurship in the realm of education. But what is, was clear throughout the conversation was passion. If you do something that you're passionate about, that's the number one thing. Enjoy. Hello, Daniel, and hello, Lena. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Hi, Daniel. Thank you for joining. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it is, a, it is a great pleasure because um, I would start off, like, off the bat. I love your project, okay? I, uh, I, I regret that I didn't have your project when I started, when I was in like junior high, high school. And... Because my first experience with organic chemistry was horrible, <laughs> horrible. <laughs> I was I was shell shocked. Uh, we had we will talk about it later on because uh, it still lives very vividly in my memory. But Daniel, give us your 
like elevator pitch. Who are you? What are you doing today? Sure. So uh, I'm uh, Dan Freed. I have a PhD from uh, Yale. I uh, have a connection to Israel. I did my uh, postdoc at the Weissman. And when I came back, I became a chemistry professor. And I teach mainly uh, chemistry classes, uh, biochemistry classes. And uh, during the last several years of being a professor, I developed this project called Biochemistry Literacy for Kids, which has the goal of changing the way people think about early science education. And I use uh, lots of visual and tactile approaches to chemistry learning, basically model building to make very, very complex subjects, things that people are scared of or traumatized from even, uh, that they may be aware of, uh, make those concepts fun and accessible to very young kids. So cool. I have to join offer. Uh, I, I also wish it was there when I was doing my undergrad. Uh, we went through with my son, uh, he's nine-year-old, uh, and we just listened to one um, to one of the, to the first uh, lecture. And it was amazing because, first of all, he understood ideas that I only learned about when I was sort of, you know, after 20. But wow. also, later on, we were listening to a different podcast, and he sort of something about um one of the molecules and it's like and he sort of in, internalized the ideas and it's like oh it has to be double bond because it, there's many electrons and it's like oh my god wow <laughs> you're nine it's incredible <laughs> so um it's really amazing and um i really wanted to ask sort of why did you decide to make the switch because basically you are already teaching chemistry um to your students and you're in the university as a professor so why to switch to children yeah, I mean, I always had the sense that this could be done at the very early age. I just knew it. I mean, ever since the end of my grad school, I started to put together like how awesome protein folding was because that was my mm. PhD research. I just thought like, why couldn't kids learn about these crazy like spirally structures that are like all rainbow? Like, why wouldn't anyone want to learn what that is? So um, I just started making these little test classes that I was able to throw together and we started to see that kids really wanted to do it and they could learn super quickly. And I'm sure I wasn't the first person to ever try something like that, but I'm really, really stubborn. And <laughs> I've kind of persevered when I think a normal person may have given up and realized that maybe this uh, isn't actually like wanted in certain circles, but I just kept going with it. And I've, I've been able to get it to a, a really nice level now where we did find a market for it. We connected to the people who, who like it. And I'm just really fortunate to have that. The other big part of my background is uh, my families are, uh, is, uh, it's a family of teachers. So both my parents are teachers. My brother's a music teacher. I was a music education major before I was a science person. So I've always wanted to work with kids. So it was just like a natural combination to um, kind of put together my, my interest in science, my frustration with what I went through learning science, just like a lot of other people, organic chemistry or other subjects. And then my my interest in work, working with kids and maybe even like a who knows genetic predisposition to working with kids <laughs> because my whole family are, are are amazing teachers, so that might be part of it too. So exciting! So when you say you are stubborn enough, that implies of like major hurdles and like forces opposing you. What what is what is the problem in acceptance? Is is there the kids, parents, the education system? 
Yeah, especially in the beginning. And I, I do like to not emphasize this anymore because it, it does have traction and we are seeing amazing things now. I have, you know, so many students doing this. Uh, but in the beginning, yeah, it's always hard whenever you start something new and you do something sort of entrepreneurial that a lot of people are not going to want to compete with you and they're not going to want to see something new. So I went through all those things in the beginning. Um, I think a lot of people are territorial over what they do. And um, you just don't want to think that something out of the box as possible. So yeah, we went through a lot of trouble, a lot of wasted times and dead ends. And it was very frustrating. I gave up several times. I mean, a few times I just scrapped the whole idea, but then you kind of go back to it because you realize, oh, well, that that was working, but it was just the adults that were the problem. It wasn't the kids that were the problem. And I'm sure that other educators have gone through similar things, people who try to do innovative work. Um, but so, so, you know, I've been going through that, but uh, now we connected with a great group of a uh, few, few schools that are really interested and especially the homeschoolers, which is really had, we've created a thriving community there. So I'm really happy about, you know, what's happened recently. Yeah. I think for homeschoolers this past year to sort of, to address that market uh, during COVID is probably the best market. Uh, I know a lot of people that sort of struggled with the system before, but sort of used COVID as an excuse to sort of try the waters with homeschooling. And, um, and as you say, like there's so much that can be done in a much more innovative and fun way uh, that the schools just, you know, are lagging to adapt. And so it's, it's really encouraging to hear that you have also schools that are working with you um, to sort of have the kids learn it in such a fun and interactive way, which is definitely more sort of, you know, it will sit down much better than just looking at that, you know the molecules written down yeah i mean so actually since since you guys all know what this is uh the the listeners may not know so much about what <laughs> we're talking about that's true but uh, yeah yes, but uh, yes, i mean you, you can you can it's the kind of thing that you kind of have to see it to understand what it is and maybe even go to a class to see it but on the website biochemistry literacy for kids you can you know see what it looks like the kids are they're putting together the models but it's not just putting them together they're putting together things on a much grander scale than you may have seen before. They're putting together whole peptides. Um, they're putting together phospholipids, which takes uh, several of those model kits to put together. And they're also using um, professional grade computer modeling. So, I mean, many of the listeners may be aware of PyMol and other kinds of 3D viewing software for proteins. And the kids uh, actually become pros at these molecular modeling tools. So it's just, it's, you know, I have to step back sometimes and realize like how crazy it is to have a six-year-old giving me a lesson on PyMol and how to do something that I didn't know how to do. It's really, really nuts. So um, yeah, it becomes normal to me. It becomes normal to the kids. But when someone on the outside sees it, it's really shocking um, and it's wonderful. So when, when they start, the, how does the program work? What, what is the first step? What is the intro for uh, like organic chemistry or... Yeah, yeah. So it's a combination of general chemistry, organic, and the goal is to get you into biochemistry, looking at the biopolymers and protein folding and things like that. So the program begins in a very kind of like strange way. We don't start in a basic way. We start at this like grand scale. They look at an entire protein, all 9,000 and so atoms together, and they have to go in and deconvolute it and figure out what are the patterns in what they see, this enormous protein, like what are the, how do we make sense of this of this thing? And uh, that does two things. First of all, it gives them 
and empo- it empowers them because they look at something that looks completely intractable and something that how could a nine-year-old or an eight-year-old ever understand what this is? But then we zoom in and we start to figure out the patterns and they connect certain things to the periodic table and they start to you know structure some knowledge and they start to f- build a framework that we base other lessons on. So it's this combination of giving them high-level knowledge right away believing and then believing that they can do it and they they know that I believe in them and that's a big part it's the empowerment so they're not given this you know simplified you know baby version of chemistry with um i don't know like a happy smiley faces on all the <laughs> atoms or something that's made for kids you know they feel like they are i'm being i'm treating them as a real scientist and they just they always rise to the occasion every single time especially the young kids so it's a combination of sociological, uh, you know, psychological factors, but then also content. And, and um, what I've spent years and years making are these extremely visual and animated presentations, which are not easy to make. You know, uh, I'm not going to a slide share website and, and, and giving them an organic chemistry lesson. It's all specially created, customized, you know, there's been several generations of it. So yeah, a lot of work went into it, but it's been, you know, really nice to see that it's that it works and that the kids get so much out of it so it's a it's a special way of doing chemistry i would say different from what you saw in high school absolutely absolutely different but i do want to ask so what do you think the advantages or like what's the you know for me looking back on my education i can see how that would have contributed to sort of me being understand chemistry better but um you know, what's the reason for other kids, kids that probably, you know, most of them will not be chemistry scientists or scientists at all. Um, what's the reason for them to to do this? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. First of all, I would say half of them want to become biochemists within a few <laughs> lessons, which is a little bit funny. Um, yeah, it becomes part of their personality, defines sure. them. But you're right, not everyone's going to become a biochemist. Uh, and the reason, you know, I made the curriculum almost like, I don't know what you would compare it to, almost like a Christmas story. Is that right? Where you kind of go back in time and try to see what you could have changed about your life or what would have been different. It's sort of like that idea where the, the curriculum is me going back in time and figuring out what were the problems there and, and what would have made it work better for me. So that's where, that's where it comes from in a personal way. Mm-hmm. But so, so I'm trying to train myself again. So I'm trying to make another biochemistry PhD, I guess, is what I'm, and and that's, and it seems to be working, but yeah, you're right. It goes beyond that. So it goes to do kids feel a connection to the world around them in a scientific way. So, I mean, that's also a huge motivation for me. So I'm very inspired by Carl Sagan. And if you're familiar with the the original Cosmos series, that's more than a documentary about astronomy. It's about a connection and a oneness with the universe. And that's what I'm trying to do not to compare myself to Carl Sagan, but that's what I'm trying to do in a biochemistry way. So I'm trying to fill that need that people have to be connected to the um, to the world of the ultra small. So Carl Sagan did the world of the ultra large, basically, but I focus on the inner space. And I think that kids want to know what they're made of. They want to know how life works. They want to know the structure and the meaning behind chemistry and, and living matter. They want to know these things. It's just natural for them. So, and I want to know that too. Like I want to know how everything works inside the body or inside a plant or everything else. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the motivations for me. 
connection to the world, training biochemists, but then also can we have scientifically literate and competent populations around us? Can we have people that actually know what they're talking about and can make decisions? I mean, some of these people will be making political decisions or business decisions or decisions relating to environmental issues. So can we have people that actually understand science to make these important decisions? That's the most important goal, I guess, of the project. It's just to have a, a competent, a scientifically competent population. So, so exactly on that, so so are you, are you aside from teaching the basics, so the high level and the basics of, of chemistry and biochemistry, are you conferring the ideas of critical thinking, of uh, sifting out like fake news, which is very important today as a, as a, as a parent for a teenager, uh, from real fact, how you uh, how how you like see the world in like scientific uh, logic? Yeah, that's a great question too. I am trying, so I do try to remain pretty neutral. I don't try to proselytize myself and use it as a soapbox to say like, do this, do that, uh, don't do that, like eat this, like don't eat that. Um, so I let the kids kind of make their own conclusions, but yeah, so I kind of give them the tools to do that. But uh, that is something that I could incorporate more maybe with special classes where we look at uh, data and try to figure out, you know, fake science, real science and things like that. Um, there's one really great collaboration that I will mention. Um, one of my great friends from when I was in music school, actually, um, uh, her name is uh, Amy. She became a philosophy professor and she runs a philosophy for kids program out of uh, uh, Nevada, where she is a professor. So actually some of my, uh, a lot of my students actually take her course too. So we have this really cool connection between kids learning extremely high level biochemistry and then doing her um, philosophy of science for kids program. So we're gonna try to develop that more next year. We have, I think she got some funding for that to continue it. So we're going to maybe foster that idea of critical thinking and um, you know, looking more at the philosophical connection to to the science as well. That's great. I think that critical thinking, especially this year, showed us that it's so important. It's 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 so incredibly important that people. I think especially now that we have this sort of vast amount of information and so hard to sift through it. And even you know, I find very intelligent people that all their lives sort of manage to make very intelligent decisions. All of a sudden, are lost in this sort of vast amount of information and just can't make up their mind in a proper way. <laughs> um, and I think some science education and sort of education and rigorous thinking would, would help in order to, to help those people to focus on what's important. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, wanted, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Just, just, just one example. Um, we do an exercise where the kids actually get a full uh, structure of the COVID spike protein. So they, learn the structure, but they understand what it is, which I think 99% of the population wouldn't know what to do with such a thing, Absolutely. but they can actually go into that structure and they can mutate. They can find, oh, what's the Delta mutant? Wh which mutations are those? Which is the UK variant? Which mutations are those? So a kid that, or any human who has <laughs> the ability to understand the, the idea of a mutation at, high, at atomic resolution, they're already you know, in such a better position to make Absolutely. decisions about what to do about vaccines or whatever else. Um, it's just not a tool that people have. And, and it's understandable that people have trouble making these decisions because they're just not trained in it. It's completely alien ter territory for them. But these kids, um, it's almost like going to the playground for them. It's just so natural to be playing inside of Pymol, 
doing mutations, looking at the secondary structure of a protein. It's just so natural for them. So that's, I'm really curious what happens to them. What happens to a person who learns oh, that when God. they're eight years you old? Have to, you have to follow them. You have to have a, a parallel yeah. sort of a yeah. <laughs> experiment. Like the BBC, uh, human child <laughs> series from birth yeah. to scientists. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, uh, I'm sure it's going to be an incredible group of people. <laughs> so let's go talk a little bit back about your sort of background. So you said you did a... Um, a postdoc in, in Israel during chemistry. Um, and then you got a sort of, were you thinking you'll be a scientist early on? Were you interested in those things in the beginning? Yeah, to be honest, I, to be honest, I always knew that I was going to do something with teaching. I didn't know that, you know, I always had big ideas about changing schools. I think I wanted to like own my own school a lot of the time. <laughs> I didn't know that it was going to become an online school because that kind of thing didn't exist. I didn't know about Zoom. You know, Zoom wasn't <laughs> around back then. So yeah, I'm not surprised that this is what happens. Um, I wasn't, you know, I think if I was really successful in research and and, and was able to do research um, as, as a, you know, as a, at, a, at a high level research institution, I would have loved to do that. But I, this is my, you know, special you know, angle on life, my special talent. So I really almost feel obligated to keep working on this, even when, during the tough times. So I always did have this goal of doing something with teaching. I didn't know that it would, you know, take over and, and be, and start to become a little bit more successful. You know, I always thought it would be something that would be on the side or I would just, you know, be constantly attempting it, but I'm really hoping that this starts to take off because we see, uh, and what COVID did is it allowed me time to create, to be more creative and, and to, to uh, flesh it out. And it allowed me to connect with more students. So I'm, I'm really hoping that this, you know, mushrooms more and we get some, some more traction. But eventually, so, so you did a PhD from one of the world leading universities. So you have that on your CVs and, and you say you, you wanted to, you always wanted to teach, do something in teaching. So why a postdoc? What, what was the decision-making process that led you to this postdoc from Yale? We love Israel and Weizmann is amazing. Elena will... Lena will testify. They never accepted me. But um, so why a postdoc? Why Weizmann? Huh? Big, big mistake. mistake. <laughs> big mistake. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at, at the time, it, it was kind of still like a, a, you know, in its embryonic stages. So I, I didn't have the, I didn't have the ability to to do teaching because in in the United States, even if you're a great teacher unless you have the certifications, you're not a teacher. So even if I wanted to do teaching out of PhD, there was no way for me to do it other than to go back to school. So I kept, uh, you know, on the diligent pass path to uh, you know, an academic position. So I, I applied for the postdoc. Um, my wife also got a postdoc in the Weissman. So I think the, the reason we went, went there is I really wanted, we wanted to live in Israel uh, for some time and my wife had a position there. So that's kind of why we ended up there. And it was kind of also practical. Uh, my PhD ended at a time when the drug companies were not hiring and it was a very bad time economically. So it just made sense to do a postdoc at that time. And I'm so lucky I did that because I got to work with an amazing PI, uh, Ed Beyer. And it was just a wonderful lab to work with, an international lab. And I really loved doing it. I loved being in Israel, uh, exploring the country, working with the projects that I was, you know, assigned to, to do and the other, you know, um, scientists that were in the lab. So, yeah, that, that's kind of why I, I went there. And when I came back, the, you know, I became a professor and I was kind of sitting around one day wondering what to do. And I go, oh, why don't we dig up this project again, this education thing that I kind of started in grad school. 
and I managed to get into a couple schools and then it started to grow from there. So like you, you said very sort of casually, I just picked up this project that I, I had. Um, but honestly, like your life is, you know, gets busy. Uh, I know you have a child. Um, I don't know. Is your wife also in, in, in the academia still? Yeah, she's a, a very successful professor also in the CUNY system. And she's got a great uh, research program as well. She studies uh, fluorescent fish and the proteins that in, are involved in, in marine uh, biofluorescence and uh, things like that. Oh. So she's she's uh, uh, well-funded also. <laughs> that, that's also very useful. <laughs> so, so how do you sort of, I don't know, like open your mind and do something else when you already have, you know, you have your set, you know, you're already a professor, you, sort of, you have your career sort of set. Um, how do you manage to sort of step aside and think I should do something else or I should do something more? I guess what, what were the nay voices in your mind that you said, no, 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 I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do it. I guess the, where it all comes from is the stubbornness because I always knew that I was right about it, not to sound like obnoxious <laughs> about it, but I always knew that I had something to offer. And when you're dealing with kids, like it's hard to not, to, it's hard to ignore that, that you know that you could do something to help and to change a kid's life and not just one kid, but a, you know, potentially so many. And I just couldn't get it out of my mind that I was going to end it and that it would just die. And, and that this thing that I had kind of created would, would not be brought to its full extent. So that's, that's what happened to it. So I, you know, I had this just kind of like need to do it. And I knew that I, wanted to be proven right about it because, you know, I was really, really troubled, not really anyone's fault because it's really the system, but in uh, high school, it was just really rough to do these classes. I just didn't feel like I was prepared. I felt like I wasted years. I had so much stress. I saw people around me so stressed out and I just don't think it was done right. And like, I'm trying to change that. I'm trying to fix what shouldn't be done to people anymore. And um, even though it's probably going to always be an issue to convince people about it, um, I just wanted that to be a, a wrong that was righted. So that's, I think that's where it comes from for me. Also, I like learning this stuff. And I don't, a lot of this I learn by creating these lessons. So just my natural love for science is kind of perpetuated. When I make a lesson, you have to know everything. You can't kind of evade the fact that some parts of the knowledge are fuzzy. You have to know everything because the kids will call you out on anything that they feel is missing. Okay. So that's a challenge that I like to have to make these lessons so like perfectly done that there's no holes in them. And like I completely understand so that the kids can completely understand. And I just like to show the world like what kids can do and that, that, that this is a real thing that, that kids from a very early age can do this stuff. Uh, so yeah, it's, kind of like my personal um, <laughs> mission to make it work. Uh, what, was, so that's like, what was the most like surprising question you got from a student? Like did you said, I haven't thought about it. That's an awesome question. Oh yeah. There's a lot probably. I'm trying to think if there's anything in particular. We have time. I mean, you thing, can give a couple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been doing this for a while. So I kind of, I do know the questions but back. If you asked me in the beginning, I would have had more because now it doesn't surprise me because I've done so many. I know the questions that they're going to ask, um, but they'll ask me. Uh, oh, you know, there's one that comes to mind. I'll, I will say I was teaching in a Montessori school, developing a lesson on hydrogen bonding. 
And a student asked me, now if people know about hydrogen bonds, it's a connection between a polarized hydrogen, so a hydrogen that's connected to an electronegative atom like a nitrogen or an oxygen. It's a, con it's a uh, connection between that polarized sort of positively charged nitrogen and the lone pair electrons of some other atom like an, an oxygen or a, or a nitrogen. So there has to be actually a, a connection between, it's really three atoms are involved. It's a electronegative atom, a hydrogen, and then another electronegative atom with a lone pair. And the student asked me, how come the hydrogen bond has to be in a line and it can't be like at an angle? It's a little bit hard to explain without a picture, but I never really thought about it so much. So actually in about 10 minutes, we kind of all talked together and developed a theory about why the hydrogen bonds have this particular structure to them. And uh, the kid's name was Zach. And now actually now on the slides that the kids actually use on my website, um, you might see them eventually. It's called Zach's Rule, and it's like written right there because he helped me. And it's it, I, we looked it up, and it makes sense. I just never thought about it. But it's this idea of of how do you structure a hydrogen bond, and why does a certain angle work and a certain angle doesn't work, and why are certain hydrogen bonds there and others aren't there? So it's a really big question. This is involved in how DNA uh, makes the duplex, how proteins fold. So it's a huge question. But we were able to figure this out and look at it in a deeper way. That you know, if you watch, if you did this in a, a biochem course, you'd kind of Oh, hydrogen bond, memorize the definition, check, that's it. But these <laughs> kids want to know, you know, a, a level that might not be, you know, of interest to yeah. someone who's trying to learn it in a college course. And you also granted them the feeling of sharing credit, which is very important in science. So, oh, I love to, sh I love to share credit with yeah. um, 10, 10 year olds who figure out stuff. Yeah. That's incredible. So I wonder, is it, is it mostly gifted kids or is it, is it a mix? Do, do you know? Yeah. So right now, as of 2021, I do have a lot of gifted kids in the program, but it's made for everybody. The program was developed in, you know, general public schools. There was no special selection process for these kids. Uh, I get that question a lot. It's made really to be a democratization of chemistry. So that's one thing I talk about that biochemistry is this elite subject that you have to be a pre-med student you know, you have to be 20 something years old, you have to have survived all this rigor to get to this level. And I don't think it should be this elite subject. I think that anyone can learn it from an early age, you don't have to be gifted. And actually, one thing that we see is that kids with uh, learning differences, uh, special, you know, needs in terms of learning, a lot of those kids, the program resonates really well with them. And we've even done a couple like, you know, minor studies on it, like preliminary studies. And it resonates with kids that, you know, science is not working for them in a normal way. And actually these kids, because it's in a more artistic uh, angle, and uh, maybe based on my background in music education, I kind of approach science in a different way. So it, it works with those kids too. So yeah, it by no means doesn't need to be gifted, but that's, that is a market though, because you know, who, who, what parents are looking for extra science and who's, who's Googling biochemistry for eight-year-olds, yeah. it might be those parents, but it really is for everyone. So I hope that I can get the word out and, and show that this can be for anyone. I was not a particularly um, fast student. I was the last kid done on every test that I've ever taken. Um, so, you know, I obviously am very interested in a lot of things, but I made the program for people like me who are maybe not the greatest at reading, not the greatest at math. It's made to help, you know, like I said, I'm kind of go back and going back in time and fixing things. So that's <laughs> what I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember what it was like to be me and the last kid in the class and everyone had their, 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 their test in. And I was still in the halfway through 
Like that's the that's the person that I'm writing it for. And obviously that's going to work really well for a gifted kid, but it's going to work for other kids hopefully as well. Yeah, I think you said to me uh, in one of the preliminary talks is that actually like you try to sort of accommodate gifted kids, but it's actually pretty much the same, right? Yeah. Another major question that I get is like, what age is it for? So the question, what age is it for? And does my kid have to be gifted? It's sort of the same question. Um, whenever I try to make a special class for a certain age or a special level of giftedness, I don't ever see any differences. It's almost, it's just the same thing. Um, the kids, you know, it's, it's, it's made in a very general, like all encompass, encompassing way where we don't exclude people which is a, a major thing too. Like, I don't want this to be an exclusive uh, program. So yeah, it works for so many ages. If the kids can read, it helps. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't tried this on four-year-old. Actually, well, our, our kid is, get. I'm going to start to work on it with him. So we'll see about four-year-olds, <laughs> but um, it's not made for that. It's made for elementary school and up. And Will um, it accommodate like non-scientist non uh, uh, adults who are interested? Yeah, I think so. I do run some classes for that. I work with a really amazing nonprofit in um, New York City called GenSpace. And I teach courses for adults through them. And often it's, um, you know, general audience people, people who have an amateur interest in science. So, you know, I, I use the same kind of materials with them and, and it's really nice for them as well. But yeah, I'd love to teach um, general adult classes too. That would, be, that would be super fun too, more of those. And of course I use similar materials for my college kids too. But yeah, where the real magic is, is in elementary because it's just so... Uh, I think unprecedented to see kids doing this. So that, that's what makes me so excited to see the younger kids doing it. See, you you uh, raised up a, a good uh, point. So you you also have college students. So you you teach them uh, sort of the same same courses, biochemistry, or um, and then yeah, is the college sort of open for you to sort of you know use your tools to to teach them? Yeah. So being a professor has definitely helped. Uh, do this because it gave me, you know, it gives me a, a, a captive audience to try out <laughs> new sorts of, um, you know, lessons and things like that. So what I'll often do is, you know, I'm, I have to teach these courses, biochemistry, medicinal chemistry, organic chemistry, and then I'll adapt them for the kids, make them better. And then I recycle them back to college. So there's this nice dialectic that happens where I'm constantly cycling through. And, you know, there are differences. I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but there are differences that help me, you know, finesse it and improve it um, as I as I cycle through adults and then back to the kids again. And sometimes stuff stuff that happens with the kids, I'm able to improve for the adults and then other way around. So yeah, that that has been great to be to to, to be a professor. Uh, I don't think it would have been possible if I wasn't a professor. At least you know doing doing uh, college uh, courses for adults. So it's it's been a great uh, way to do that. So the process you're describing with the um, you know, taking the the bases from from university, adjusting it to kids, trying it again, and adjusting it. it's a sort of a product basic A B testing. And um, I wonder like how how do you think like so how much does your scientific um, your own scientific education not necessarily a biochemist but like how to conduct experiments, how to draw conclusion, how that uh, uh, like um, ooze into your entrepreneur, uh, Dan? Yeah, I understand. That's a really good question. And that comes up a lot. So, um, one, well, it comes a lot for me <laughs> when I talk to people in, in uh, education research, one thing that 
maybe it's just my naive understanding of the field, but one thing that kind of sometimes comes up is that if you don't have a philosophical, um, if you don't have a philosophical foundation for some kind of intervention or some kind of study, that it it's not even something that you would try. But in science, in a in a pure science, if you make a random accidental discovery, that's extremely useful and valid, and that can be the beginning of a whole new research field. So I do notice a little bit of a tension, to say the least, between the science educators and um, you know people who do hard sciences, where we have, at least the way I see it, we don't have a need to have some philosophy laid out in order for me to do anything. So I hope that makes sense. So yeah. part of my project was almost like it completely empirical. So like the lesson one that you saw, that lesson one makes no sense in any kind of science education philosophy, or, you know, if I show that to someone, it would make no sense to them because they'd be like, it's so backwards. It's so wrong. But I've taught that course, that, that particular lesson, probably 200 times or maybe even more. So empirically, I figured out the order to do things, to reverse things. And it didn't even make sense to me at the time. But I found that if I just like, let's try it one day, let's try reversing the order. Let's start from the extremely complicated and not the simple. And that works mm -hmm. so much better. And that's, I don't know if that's something that is acceptable or would be something that people want to hear in other in other fields. So there is a definitely a, a little bit of a disconnect between some people think that I'm a science edu uh, education researcher, but I'm not quite sure that I fit in the field. I would like to fit in the field, but I think my background as a, as a, a hard scientist, I'm much more likely to make random discoveries and then use those, you know, I'll just try random things. Just like when we, you know, it, it, in a lot of our labs, we do, um, we'll do combinatorial chemistry where we just put together random parts of a molecule and just test a thousand things and see if that works. That's kind of how this was done. You know, I obviously I don't just randomly create lessons, but in the early stages, I didn't give myself any limits. I just would see like, let's do this. Let's make a lesson on something and let's try scrambling it and see what works with it. So yeah, you're, you're totally right that as a, someone who's trained in the way that we think about science, that's, created this program. I don't think if I was trained in science education, I think I would have been, it would have been a, a much stricter path. And I don't think I would have gotten anywhere close to this. And that might be why it's pretty unique. I'm not saying that I'm totally unique. Actually, recently, I found another person um, in Australia who's done a lot of the similar stuff. Um, but I think if you were a kind of a cultured in science education, and you had a lot of extra training, you would be good at doing, you know, that stuff. But what I'm trying to do is really different. And um, it's not. It's just not based on the theories that are around. It's based on something new. Yeah, I, I think I think like bringing this accidental discovery and really building building this hypothesis or or a track uh, around this uh, to to further emphasize it. That's that's very important. I think you you unlocked something by by saying let's start let's start high level. Uh, it's not necessarily the understanding of the high level, but the building up of motivation to explore and drill down and. Um, and really adjusting to like again, I'm talking as a as a father for a, for a brand new teenager, a ten year old, and his attention. I it's it's a struggle to get its its attention span, but once it's there, he will he will progress on it. He has all the tools, he has all the access to all the information. If he's interested, he's in there, and he will go go through with 
like all the problems and attention deficits and problems and stuff like that. And another great example that I thought of when we, when we came into this interview was uh, a YouTube channel, a science YouTube channel that I personally, I love a crash course. And they, they, they do, they do the same. So they really, they really concentrate a complex idea into, uh, into short uh, uh, videos, which are visual, and they and, and they, they really tapped into exactly as you did. They tapped into the way to motivate people to give them their the very high level and then a few tools and escort them and when they drill down. So that is that is amazing. And that leads me to my my other question that I, I'm been sitting with. I love chemistry. It's, it's very it's very nice. It's not my passion, I'll be honest. Okay. I'm a molecular geneticist. I really love AGCT. I really love uh, genes and genomes and stuff like that. How transferable you think your understanding of building a course is to other fields? Like taking the the um, Daniel and not uh, not alluding to uh, Daniel from Stargate, but from another universe that is not a biochemist but a molecular geneticist, and building a similar course for kids about clinical genomics. Yeah, maybe we can work with that too, because I don't. I also don't like to go too far away from my, you know, trained area of expertise. And if people ask me questions, I'll always defer. I don't try to feel like I know everything. So maybe we can talk more about that. But yeah, it is. I think it is definitely transferable. Um, the one thing that I will say is that um, one of the bigger philosophical motivations for me, uh, foundations for the whole biochemistry literacy program was an art educator uh, named Betty Edwards. And I do mention her from time to time. She's on my website too. And I'm actually in touch with her a little bit. Um, she wrote this very famous art learning book, uh, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. So some people may actually know know her. Uh, do you know, you've heard of her? I read her book and I did oh, her, great. The, the exercises. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I was an art kid also as a kid, not as much as a music kid. I wish I had more time for art, but I used her books and when I got this in my head to work with kids and to kind of challenge the expectations about what's possible, I really didn't want to do the science. Actually, I wanted to do the art because from reading her books, I taught myself to draw, but then also did some painting and sculpture from that too. And I was amazed like how effective her, met her methodologies were. I just did a few exercises and practiced a few things. And then I, I had these like extra abilities and I didn't think that it, I was some kind of a genius or something. I think she's a really good teacher. And I think that she can transfer how to draw realistically really well. So I wanted to see if that could work on kids, not just me as an adult. I didn't, I actually didn't want to believe that I had some kind of special abilities because that didn't make sense. That doesn't really sit well with me that, that I'm so unique that this is only working for me. It didn't make any sense. So I wanted to try it with kids. So actually I, the first courses I ever taught as a, as a teacher in any way were art classes for the kids. <laughs> so we, we, we tried out basically a slightly adapted version of Betty Edwards. And I have on my uh, website and other places, these beautiful pictures that the kids made in just a few hours. And if you're familiar with Betty Edwards, she's very famous for this like very quick turnover where the kid, the, the, usually it's an adult, is drawing a very like kind of juvenile, looks like something from seventh grade kind of self-portrait. And then, you know, five hours later, it looks like pretty good actually. And it's yeah, very yeah. Mi minimal work that went into it. So I, I have those for kids, you know, even like six-year-olds, seven-year-olds. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm not really an artist. I'm not, at least I'm not trained. I have no credentials as an artist. So I should probably 
do a biochemistry version of Betty Edwards. <laughs> so that's the other big, that's the other big part of the program is that this is a, this is, if you know Betty Edwards, you'll know what I'm talking about, but it's a, it's a Betty Edwards version of biochemistry. And when we made our first documentary, um, short documentary a few years ago, I sent it to her and I was amazed that she wrote back to me. So I've been in touch with her, you know, here and there. So she's aware of the project and she's like, obviously really um, interested that it's being uh, applied, you know, outside of art. So the question that you asked, can chemist, can biochemistry, can my method be applied to other fields? It's also like saying, can Betty Edwards's method be applied to other fields? Cause that's where I got it from. And, um, so I, I think definitely biology, definitely other fields, maybe physics. I, de- I need to work with specialists. So if there are any people listening, which I know that there will be people listening in other <laughs> fields and want to collaborate, that's the person I've been looking for. I've been really looking for a physics person, someone who has biology skills beyond what I have. And I, I'd love to, to be more collaborative and expand what this could be. Yeah, I think you also tapped into something interesting in in sort of sort of looking at how you created this sort of series is that... A lot of the times we would ask people that we interview sort of what are the transferable skills and what are the sort of the tools that gave you sort of the ability to do something else. And a lot of the time it's sort of more sort of straightforward things like project management and writing and presentation and teaching and sort of things that we we do sort of as, as researchers. And you're talking about this sort of very creative way of thinking, of sort of designing things and in sort of experimental way. Um, which I really like. And I think if our listeners sort of give that a chance and think beyond what they're sort of, you know, what goes into their CV, um, uh, it really can sort of spring a lot of really amazing ideas and, and new avenues of, of sort of bringing science or science thinking uh, or, or completely other things um, into the world, uh, which is really, really incredible. Yeah, I always had this, you know, one thing that happened early on, I was a music major, I was really into music, I was a, I played baritone horn. um, And I was, it was my thing, it was my, like my life. And I changed to, I actually had this change early on at my freshman year, I was really ingrained, this was ingrained in me, and then I changed to, to, uh, to biology. So I had this experience earlier of completely changing what I was doing. So that was like, it's like fine for me to do that. I don't feel like, you know, if I'm on a certain path, you know, in, in terms of my work, that that's the path I'm, I'm always gonna, gonna do. I'm always open to completely changing. And that's, that's kind of what this was. It's, it's like trying to find something that's, that's really new and that's not the step-by-step plan that everyone knows you're supposed to take. That it's, it's actually, and actually I like going against what people want me to do and trying something new. So that's a, that's like a natural part of what I what I like to do also. Yeah, we had a we had a uh, one of the interviews uh that we did recently with uh Katie Lang and she uh um she opened at least me uh, Lennon knew this book to uh, read the design your life and one of the exercises there is like quickly give me like three life three possible life for Daniel. So you had all you already had two like a musician uh and uh and, and an education and a scientist and an education person. What is the third? Oh no, we don't want on to... the spot. <laughs> mm, I hope that my um my chair of my department isn't listening. But um let's see what else would I, you know what I would like to do is I would like to get back to art. 
that is something that is very needed. I really love painting. Actually, if I could do anything, I would be painting and sculpting. That is, I just love doing that. And it has really no purpose outside of, you know, cause I'm never gonna be a professional sculptor or anything, but that's what I really, it's just so natural for me to do that. And I'm, I can just do that for the entire day. So maybe that's the next thing, uh, get back into the art. So I will have had the music, the science, and then back to the art. And then I'd be, I'd feel complete. Oh, that's, that's cool. I think, A lot of creativity. Uh, yeah, and I think uh, now that you mention it, uh, Betty Edwards is amazing. And it would be so amazing if the kids were taught. Like, I, I've joined a few of my kids' art lessons. And it's nice, but it's not. It's you know, it's nowhere near of sort of actually giving them the tools. So the ones that have it naturally will succeed. And the ones that don't have it naturally will sort of do the exercise that they sort of were taught in the class and will never become artists. Um, but if they were taught the Betty Edwards uh, method, which is for those that sort of don't have uh, more education about it, is sort of they, she gives very, very precise ex exercises to do where, which teaches you sort of what are the, um, like what are the basic mistakes we do and sort of what is the sort of, we, we tend to represent things where we're not draw what we actually see. And she gives you very, very precise examples and tools to do it. Um, it would be amazing if the kids would, would have experience sort of someone teaching them according to her method and not sort of the regular um, system and similar to biochemistry. So yeah, no, a lot of things to explore in, in, the, in schools. Yeah. And actually one, one summer, a while back, I did a, a summer camp through a community college where I had a few kids in it but it was a music, uh, sorry, it was, a, it was an art and science combined summer camp. So I did the Betty Edwards stuff and then mm -hmm. also the chemistry stuff. And there are, you know, you know there's, it's, it's an, a, a more global, there's a global similarity between the two things, but then also a more practical level. Like when you look at a molecule, you have to know like the connection, you have to really focus and in a Betty Edwards way, oh, a carbon has a bond to a nitrogen, has another bond to a, a hydrogen. And you have to really be able to see very precisely. So there is there is definitely an uh, a benefit to having an artistic mind and then to studying chemistry. I think that the two things are very related. And when you look at the 3D, 3D, 3D structure of proteins and other things, those are like molecular sculptures. So it's um, you know being able to visualize and explore something in 3D is like making a sculpture. So there's so many different parallels between art and uh, science that yeah, it would be great if, if everyone learned Betty Edwards and then also you know other you know very helpful ways of understanding science as well. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely link to her book uh, in the description. I'm so glad you knew about it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not aware, but Lana will get me reading this as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so I, I want to maybe link to uh, your entrepreneurial element. So a major question you, we have all the time to people who take their uh, dream out of lab. Usually when we talk to, uh, to scientists who uh, uh, have an like, uh, uh, entrepreneurial venture, they're taking their scientific idea to develop in the lab and taking it out. What's beautiful about your, your story is that you take science and translate it out in general, which is amazing. But as a, as a, as a first-time entrepreneur, what are, like, if you mind sharing, what is like the mistakes you, in the retrospective, done and you could have avoided? Um, and again, your, your niche, is, uh, your like, field is, is extremely interesting of educational entrepreneurship. 
Yeah, no, uh, these are the best questions I've ever had. So thank you so much for all these great questions. So insightful. Um, the first question you had about that I'm that I'm actually bringing science out as my entrepreneurial uh, mm -hmm. aspect. That's something that's really important to me because I don't like to throw away things. I'm kind of like an intellectual. I'm not an actual hoarder, but I'm a, well. Although my wife would sort of disagree, she would say I'm a hoarder, <laughs> but I'm not really a hoarder. But I do like to hoard all the intellectual things that have ever happened to me, which is kind of what this project is. It's like I'm I'm hauling my. Uh, or I'm hoarding my and, and and bring with me my my background in music and art and and other things, and I didn't want to ever lose science, so I wanted to bring science with me also in this entrepreneurial way. So I think that's important for people to try to do is is not to you know throw away anything like keep everything because you never know when it's going to be uh, useful. The other part of this, which is like a complete aside, you're gonna have to remember remind me of your original question also. <laughs> One of my best um, you know greatest friends as a kid turned out to be a uh, sound engineer, one of the top sound engineers in, in uh, New York City, just kind of in a random reconnection, he became connected with my project again. And he's actually been producing these documentaries, which have been so useful for me to tell the world about what I'm doing. So like, you know, people that you know, for, and this, is, this isn't a problem in Israel because every, everyone is so, it's like a big, um, you know, so, so, so connected. <laughs> yeah, it's like a big neighborhood. So, and this, but this is not as easy for me to do in the United States. I, I didn't have that. But this was one example where someone from my past resurfaced in a completely amazing way, and then you know, in a very you know, wonderful way of, of in fellowship and in productive work. So, and then so that's one thing I would say is like never forget your past and always bring it with you. And your other question, the main question, was the entrepreneurial idea and the pitfalls and things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's this could be a whole other podcast, and it's, it'll be it would be mostly me complaining and whining about everything. Which I try not to do, but um, yeah. So one one big thing that I uh, almost obsessively repeat to myself is it, when I'm feeling negative is that it's amazing how few people really do help you. And going into it, I thought that there'd be you know a kind of people would be open welcoming this with open arms, and that people would be going out of their way to try to make this you know see the see the vision also. But it's been so few people, and I've had it's been a precious few people who have helped. But it's amazing, like how hostile it was actually to go through this, and I'm not really mm -hmm. sure why. That's a whole other question. But um, I would say, don't count. It's a, I don't know if it's a negative advice or not, but don't count on people to support you. I do hear that from other other entrepreneur people, but just realize that you're the one doing this. This is your idea, and don't try. There's not necessarily going to be someone to help you do it, especially if you don't have a big network. And, um, you know, you're not lucky to have, you know, some kind of beneficiary. So that's one issue. Uh, I always thought that the schools would be so supportive. And I, I have had amazingly supportive schools, but I've not figured out how to communicate it correctly or reach the right people or the right schools. I just haven't figured it out yet. But uh, that's that's been a problem. And not just schools, but any anyone that's that I've, that I've tried to pitch the idea to. It's it's been a, it's been very, very, very rough. Um, other than other entrepreneurial ideas, uh, one thing that was helpful for me was to get involved in an entrepreneurship um, a meetup group, like a networking events. Mm -hmm. When I started talking about this, I couldn't explain one sentence about what it was. I had all these ideas, and if someone asked me what's your project, I would just fail to explain. It was just 
really embarrassing. I couldn't explain what, what I was trying to do. So going to these uh, networking events in New York City, there's this uh, edu- uh, ed tech meetup group, which I went to for years. They would meet uh, in person, obviously. And you'd get to understand, like, what is an entrepreneur? Like, what are other people in your situation uh, doing? Uh, you know, what are they going through? So that was actually so helpful for me to be in that situation and to have to give these elevator pitches constantly and to have people tell me, oh, do this, don't do that. And to take advice that, you know, good advice, bad advice. It's good to hear everyone's advice. So that is, that was another very helpful thing to do. And And be careful uh, about like, so so connecting to your first point that, and people are not always willing to help, uh, and 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 the last thing you said about people are always giving advice. It's yeah. <laughs> very it's very hard. It's very hard as a, as a as a newly as a novice. Also, I am I'm I'm a I'm a newbie in entrepreneurship as well. You you can get loads of advice. Yes, most of them are not helpful. <laughs> on the other, like on the contrary, they can like completely distract you and and put your project on a or derail your project and put it on another another way. And you always have to trust some some initial thought you had. So I knew, I got into this because of one, two, three, four. And this should be the core of stuff. And the 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 advice I get and support I get should support it, should lift those uh, core values up and not just overshadow them. Like unless unless you agree that something is not marketable. But if if it is, if you just slightly believe in it and don't don't like don't uh, don't bend completely. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So w- one thing that you can remember is that negative, you know, the negativity obviously can be used as your fuel to prove them wrong. That's another that's another you know direct consequence. But uh, yeah, but what I found useful was just to to be a cultured to people who were starting off in businesses, um, and you know whether or not they were telling me something that was useful or not, it was you know it was I could take it or leave it. But just hearing the way they talked was helpful to get into that mindset because I didn't have any business training, and it was just nice to to hear to hear that language. Uh, I also got involved um, through a university at actually Baruch College has an entrepreneurship office, and um, so there might be universities around that actually help you in very like tangible ways. So this um, office and the, there's you actually meet with the people. It's all free. It's I think it's it's funded by grants. So there might be other uh, similar things to that. These guys helped me write a business plan, which I never would have done. I would have thought it was like a stupid thing to do, but they really like made me do it. And I was like, oh, this actually wasn't so so stupid to do this because it actually focuses you. So and then that you know they actually gave me the in, initial advice to make a to make um, a homeschooling website because I was so focused on schools. And then meeting with them one day, they said, why don't you just make these available digitally and then homeschoolers can use it. And um, that's how really the project took off, you know, just having someone from the outside, you know, and uh, like adult supervision kind of check your, um, you know, check, check your premises there. So that's another really like tangible thing that I would say was a help for me in the very beginning. Yeah. I, I want to say that it was it was hard to 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 hear you say that sort of people not everyone supported you and sort of you, you shouldn't assume sort of people want your own sort of your back best interest so i want to raise again the option of joining the academia group and we're all scientists and we're all sort of trying to explore you know the world in different ways and i i really like our goal is that we have a very large community of people that support each other's career paths and if 
you know, anyone can support anyone else in, in making their dream come true and sort of help them out. Um, I think there are so many connections and things we can do in this group. Um, so let's be sort of, you know, the supportive rock for, for each other. I'm sure you can join our um, academia group and, or maybe you have already. And um, yeah, yeah, I think, you know, at first you said that, you know, it was hard, but then you did say that there are a lot of people that did help you. So I think we, in inside people sort of, if they can and understand how a lot of people will be able to help. Um, so I think we, so one of our goals is to sort of build this community of, of people that help each other and, and support each other's careers because it's not simple and it's not straightforward and everything you do uh, in this project, it's not something that you were sort of formally taught. Um, and I think it's, it's challenging for all of us to sort of, you know, bring into these sort of unique careers and, but it brings so much good into the world that we we should support each other. Um, yeah, and, and what you're saying is like tr trying to find those people who are going to help you. I think the way to get there is to just say yes to everything and like try to connect with like literally anyone you can. And that's how I was able to find the few people that were that were helpful. And there were just so many that weren't. But then because you're just have this very high throughput way of dealing with everything, and you say yes to everything, you do everything, it takes a lot of time, but then you eventually do stumble across the people who are going to help like, like meeting you guys was, you know, that, an, an example of that. Yeah. Um, so you just have to have a lot, a lot of volume, and then you find <laughs> the good people. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. One of our my favorite guests in the show, uh, Natalie Gyohanesi, said exactly the same thing. That at some point she uh, started to say yes to everything, and it brought so much good to her company and uh, so many unique opportunities that she could never design herself. Um, wow. uh, yeah. That brought her sort of to where she is now. Uh, so yes, say say yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I always try to get to to get my kids to to understand. You can be one of two. You can be the person who says why not doing something, or you can be the person who says why not. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, then anyway, I have to be mindful of your time. I know you have a, a lesson coming up. Um, thank you for your time. It was such a pleasure to talk about this and sort of think about other realms of sort of what science can do for others. Um, is there anything else you would like to add before we wrap up? Yeah. I mean, thank you so much. Your questions were amazing. I've had other interviews, a few others, and you guys had the best questions. So thank you so much. And you really made me think about what is the, you know, the history of the project. So thank you so much. It was helped. It was great for me also. Um, yeah. But anyone who's interested in this, if it sounds intriguing, like I said, you kind of have to see it to understand and to believe what it is. So definitely check out the website. Um, you can just Google biochemistry literacy, or you can Google me and you'll find out about it. We have a beautiful Instagram page where you can see you know, visually what it looks like. And it's just really nice. So we're going to um, have all the links on the, uh, yeah. on the description as well. And, and I am looking for collaborators. So I, I think the people listening are, are definitely the people who might be able to benefit and contribute to it. So I would love to have people from other fields. You know, I just love to talk to people about this. So anyone who wants to feel free to talk to me about it. Yeah. And we'll, we'll say thank you to Yoel that made the connection. Um, and, oh yeah, we uh, didn't. We we have to forget. We didn't forget about him. Uh, he was my master's uh, student at the Weissman, and now he's doing amazing things on his own. <laughs> so um, yeah, thank you to you, well. Yeah, yeah. So it's great to have a community that's sort of gradually sort of helping us um, build this project as well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. 
thanks again. It was wonderful to talk to you guys. Have a good day.